90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, doing pretty well. How about yourself? Oh, not too bad. Just been going a little crazy, trying to get everything <laughs> in before the deadline, uh, you know, the final copy of the dissertation, the copy that will live forever on the library website <laughs> and in the library, uh, making sure that there's no little typos or anything in it. And yeah, so that's, that's the worst drive, part. Driving me crazy because there will be one. <laughs> Oh, exactly. And you'll find it right after, you know, somebody goes to check it and takes a picture of it and sends it to you. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I mean, hopefully <laughs> it's plus... not, you know, a committee member's name or my name. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that would be that'd be pretty excellent. Um, I do remember we were searching a thesis <laughs> just uh, <laughs> last year. And in the thesis, it says insert transition sentence here. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oops. <laughs> yeah, one wasn't so smooth. Uh, no, huh? <laughs> but yes, yeah, so so I've been luck. doing that. And um, I've actually been playing with something that I heard about from some folks at work called Pie Hole. I'm just going to have to stop you there and remind you that we're a family show before you go on. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> as you might imagine, this is a Raspberry Pi thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you, the installation is a snap. You just follow the directions. And it turns your Raspberry Pi into a network-wide ad blocker and content blocker. Ooh. So instead of using your ISP's DNS server or Google's DNS server, whatever to do domain name lookup, you just point your network at the, the Raspberry Pi so your domain lookups go through it, and it has a community-maintained list of ad sites. And so when you're scrolling through your favorite BuzzFeed clickbait article, their dads are just gone. Uh, that's fantastic. Have you tried it out yet? I have. I've had it running for three or four days now, and I'm very, very happy with it. And if I had children, I'd be even more happy because it's also hey. a content filter. Yeah, I'm going to definitely be asking offline about this one. So Yeah, I mean, $30 is a cheap network filter. Yeah, that's that's pretty awesome. Um, and heck, not even just for that, but just to get rid of the ads for your kids too. That stuff's so awful. Yeah, it's it's really nice. And the only issue I had so far was I'm running it on the Raspberry Pi that powers our magic mirror. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, the mirror with the weather and all that behind it on a big monitor and there's a plug-in so it shows you on the mirror how many ads have been blocked in the last 24 hours and there was something up with that plug-in because the the pie kept overheating and memory usage went through the roof and it would just crash and as soon as i disabled uh, that everything's fine uh, but okay. yeah no it's working great uh, i haven't noticed any slowdown or impact on the network other than just not having ads uh, that's awesome. I will say that um, my friend Stacy was showing me some books that she got today on Raspberry Pi and Arduino. Um, so some O'Reilly's books, which was nice because she was like, I don't even, she's, she wants to get into this stuff. And she said, I don't even know a problem, right? We talk about that all the time on here, that you need a problem to solve. 
Right. And then that's how you get into it. And she said that these books were really good because they have sort of, they walk you through problems. So you don't even need problems. You just sit down with this book and figure it out. So I thought right. that was very exciting. Well, you know, and yeah. uh, former guest of the show and host of Embedded.fm, Elysia White has an O'Reilly book as well, Making yes. Embedded Systems. Yep. So mm-hmm. check that out. And actually check out their podcast because a couple of weeks ago, uh, they kind of geeked out about our is a processor like a brain paper. Mm-hmm. Right. So be sure to check that show out too. But it's been fun yeah. to play with this stuff. And uh, I've been using Raspberry Pi for a few things, including monitoring my 3D printer and just lots of fun stuff. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. So what have you been up to? Oh, you know, just I'm getting to the really, really bad part of the semester, right? April's always the worst. Um, so just trying to survive. It's cool. Doing some last bit of field work, and that will be exciting this weekend. I'm going to sample for magnetostratigraphy, which is something I've never done before. I mean, the sampling's the same, but the actual process of magnetostratigraphy I've never done before. So that is something that's pretty cool um, that we will probably be talking about fairly quickly on the show, I'm guessing. <laughs> Yeah, I know very little about it, actually, so I'm pretty interested. Uh, well, that makes two of us a little bit, so <laughs> <laughs> hopefully whoever, I'm, hopefully my colleague didn't hear that on my podcast, but I'll figure it out. It's okay. <laughs> Great. <laughs> well, you know, we've been getting uh, some feedback again, and Yay. we actually have an audio comment from Mike Moon about the Prince Rupert drops that we talked about. So I will let Mike tell us about that. You guys are pretty much the only time I ever use my voice memo feature. But I just, instead of emailing, thought it would be very efficient to point out to you that Destin has one or two more Prince Rupert drop videos. And in one of them, he's shooting drops on high speed with a bullet from a rifle. And the results are, as you might expect, pretty awesome. So that is also something I think you will appreciate as much as I appreciated your show today or of a couple of days ago. Anyway, thanks very much, Mike Moon. Okay, yeah, so I actually didn't know that Destin had those other videos, so we'll link those into the show notes this week. Man, Uh, that is so crazy. Pretty cool stuff, so thanks for pointing that out, Mike. Yep. And thanks for using the voice memo feature of your phone. Uh, Yes. (laughs) And we also had some feedback from listener Steve. Right. Uh, So I love this. Um, So Steve is talking about how the popcorn paper made him start thinking about that there has to be a rubber band paper out there, which I would agree with, too, because that was definitely a pastime of mine and my students, um, my fellow students who worked at the Sphere Storms Laboratory. We had a lot of rubber band fights. Yeah. And he said that he has this technique where instead of pulling back on the center of the rubber band, you put it over the end of one of your fingers and then you pull from a point more like a third of the way around so that when you let go, mm-hmm. it is spinning and it's a spin stabilized projectile. Uh, <laughs> and he said he once did this hitting a light switch uh, 30 feet across the room from his desk and really impressed someone. <laughs> but he said it was really just a lucky shot. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I love how he points out that it's a useful skill should a rubber band fight break out because... You never know when that stuff's going to go down. 
It's true. And I will say, <laughs> I looked for a rubber band paper this week unsuccessfully. Um, I found a reference in a 60s office safety manual saying, don't do it. Um, <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I have a feeling that my Google foo is not right here. I, I've... I tried searching everything I could think of. I even devolved into elastomeric projectiles. Um, I just haven't found... Uh, there has uh, to be some kind of occupational safety journal. Oh, yeah. There absolutely has to be. That has a paper on this. You know, the, the one time a rubber band killed someone or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, or, or like caused some weird sort of like rube goldberg reaction in some office setting or something right so i, I haven't given up uh, yet steve but it's uh, it's turning out to be a little more difficult than i thought um i think steve should write this paper because he even points out i'm sure high-speed cameras would be involved which i would think so too but i think that's what we should we should make steve do this you know i mean th there's uh rfps are out now for science foundation so see there you go yeah <laughs> get on it steve yeah <laughs> <laughs> well, well um there's no there's no segue from elastomeric projectiles into this week's show no there's really not because i <laughs> felt like doing another back to basics show and i went back through some entergeology stuff and said oh these are words i haven't heard in a really long time <laughs> and thought that we should talk about the bowen's reaction series I was very surprised you picked this. Well, you know, it's this something like... that I'm not comfortable with, so. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> um, this is great because this is, um, just like you said, this is a basic thing. It's something we teach in every intro geology class. Some professors make people memorize it. I generally don't when I teach it. Um, but it's really a foundation of geology, and it's also a really cool experimental sort of thing that has happened um to talk about what are the minerals that make up rocks right so fundamental definition rocks are made of minerals which are <laughs> yes abiogenic <laughs> crystalline and naturally occurring and they have a regular structure hence crystalline uh, and they're generally abiogenic that is not always the case but i'll just got to throw that in there fair okay <laughs> so in in the catalog, there are over 5,000 minerals. Which is insanity. Yes, and why all mineralogists have incredible memories. Oh, yes. Because not only do they remember all of these minerals, they remember all kinds of properties about them. Uh, uh, not to mention chemical formulas that are a page long as well. Well, you know, the interesting thing about mineral chemical formulas is on Earth, we only have so much to work with. Mm -hmm. So... The Earth is 47% oxygen, 28% silicon, 8% aluminum, and then continuing down in the sub, you know, 10% range, <laughs> iron, calcium, sodium, potassium, and manganese. Nope, magnesium. Nope. <laughs> yep. So those elements make up pretty much all of Earth. And so it's really how we rearrange those, along with a few trace elements, 
uh, yeah, to get all it's these different trace elements. It's these trace elements where the chemistry gets really icky, but right, and you know they're less than a percent, but they're important. Yes, extremely. But so really, ninety percent of the Earth's crust is silicates. So we're dealing with silicon and oxygen, mm-hmm. and you can only arrange it so many ways. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Um, and these different assemblages that can only be arranged in so many ways, um, they always want to be stable, which isn't, you know, true for a lot of minerals in certain pressure and temperature conditions, um, which is what makes space geology so cool as well. Um, but, you know, what we can learn about these different minerals, um, is by looking at their assembly and composition, all kinds of things about how they form, when they form, temperatures they form at, pressures they like to live in. And that's sort of where Bowen's reaction series, so Bowen is a person, uh, comes in and why it's a fundamental to geology. Right. So when we say the mineral's stable, we're talking about it's at a energy minimum. And the geochemists can probably <laughs> scream, but I think we're talking Gibbs-free energy here. Yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. Yes. Um, I just like to say, since it, I teach this in intro geology, is that the universe is lazy. Don't forget that. It wants to spend the least amount of energy for its buck. Right. So we like to be at the pressure and temperature conditions that we formed at. You could think of it sort of like with humans. You know, we're not necessarily stable in extreme temperatures or pressures. <laughs> So, oh, so true on so many different levels. Right. Uh, <laughs> so, um, which is interesting because diamonds aren't actually stable at Earth's surface. So I always tell people that, you know, they're like, oh, look at my ring. I'm like, ah, that's going to break down. And they're like, oh, God, when? Thousands, millions of years, but still. Millions of <laughs> not years. Not stable. Yeah. Eventually, <laughs> it's going to turn into just carbon. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I digress. Enjoy your symbol of eternal love. Uh, <laughs> no, it's it's true that because it is a very deep, high pressure, high temperature mineral. Mm-hmm. That's how we get that certain regular crystal structure. But all of this started with Norman Bowen, who was born in 1887 and lived until 1956. Mm-hmm. And he got to wondering what different rocks, mineral makeups, mineral assemblages could tell us about the habitat where that rock formed. And being an experimental type person, he went to the lab. He was at the Carnegie Institute uh, in D.C. Mm -hmm. and started doing some work. Uh, Interesting fact I found on him, though. He has a crater named after him on the moon, and it was named while Apollo 17 was on the moon. Which, not coincidentally, is the only mission that had a geologist, Harrison Smith, on board. Oh, that was a that was a beautiful factoid right there. Yes. So um, when I saw there was a crater, I looked up when it was named. Oh, it has to be sometime you know, during Apollo. And yep, sure enough, it was it was Schmidt. Excellent. Um, so this is not surprising why a geologist would pick Bowen to you know name name a crater after Bowen, because what he's done is so impressive. And so when we say he's a petrologist, um, what does that mean, <laughs> right? <laughs> because petrology for 
geologist is probably a fairly common word, but maybe not for everybody else. Um, and it's basically looking at the chemistry of rocks. And there's all kinds of petrology. You've got igneous, metamorphic, or sedimentary petrology. And usually this gets done with optical microscopes. Um, but we also do stuff like with the SEM we've talked about on here before, uh, TEMs, electron microprobes, all kinds of things to get at the chemistry of the different minerals that are making up these rocks. Definitely. And I, I tried to find when petrology became recognized as its own field distinct from geochemistry or mm -hmm. just thermodynamics. Of, and I, I couldn't really get a solid date. But no, I couldn't either because I accepted that as a challenge and failed as well. <laughs> right. And I mean, I'm sure there's not, you know, a day, but I thought there would be some kind of point <laughs> in the literature where we started seeing that more. So, but nothing really mm -hmm. jumped out at me. But one thing that did jump out when I was looking at this is how much petrology has changed from looking at minerals in microscopes and thin section to using mm -hmm. tools, like you said, like electron microscopes, TEMs, all this stuff. Uh, now there's a whole field of petrology that is based in computer modeling. Yes. <laughs> Much to our um, undergraduates' dismay when they take igneous and metamorphic petrology here. Right. <laughs> that is for sure. <laughs> because a lot of it is just chemical i mean actually there's we have a lot of excel macros that do this too but oh. a lot of it is <laughs> i know i just wanted to hear you make fun of that um but that is, that is what a lot of it is and i mean that's because we don't form a bunch of minerals at surface pressure and temperature conditions right i mean min most minerals form from a magma cooling off so that's not exactly something that's seen at earth's surface except in volcanoes and then the crystals are sometimes too small to even tell what it is right right so we can do that so, and you know undergraduates sure there's these excel spreadsheets that they use uh there are programs like geochemist workbench that do very yes. very sophisticated molecular dynamics yes. calculations <laughs> Uh, yes. <laughs> and try to determine, but of course it still has to be ground truth to experimental observation because mm -hmm. garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> exactly. And that's sort of where Bowen laid the foundation for this. Um, and it's really, so we teach it in intro geology, but petrology courses are along with mineralogy. Some of the first courses you take as an undergrad in geology. Um, so you need this understanding of the chemistry, not just for identifying rocks, um, but also for understanding how the rocks are going to behave based on what minerals are within them. And we'll get to what that means a little bit later. Right. So Bowen did these experiments, and in 1928, he put out a book called The Evolution of the Igneous Rocks. <laughs> and <Excellent. laughs> it described these experiments where he heated a melt. So, you know, we're talking thousands of degrees Fahrenheit here, mm -hmm. making a melt, and then cooled it to a certain temperature. And by cooled, I mean turned it down from 1,000 to you know, 1,500. Yeah. And then looked at what minerals were formed or were being formed at, mm -hmm. these, at this range of temperatures. And something systematic started to come out of this. And we kind of think of this series as going from 800 to 1400 Celsius 
or that's about 1400 to 2500 Fahrenheit. Right. Um, and so when we talk about this, we're talking about these crystals begin to freeze, right? So you've right. got these little things that freeze from a melt. And it is, it's the coolest thing to me to think that it always sort of happens in this exact series, which is the Bowen's reaction series. So stuff falls out of any given magma in this certain way. Yeah, definitely. And this series is something, like you said, a lot of undergraduates, I had to memorize it, and people come up with their own clever mnemonic device or <laughs> whatever. Uh, but it's a, there are two branches, but we'll start with the, the discontinuous branch, because that's the one that you have to come up with the mnemonic device for. So when you're going down the discontinuous, you go from <laughs> olivine to pyroxene to amphibole to biotite, and then you merge with the, discon or with the continuous branch that we'll get to in a second. Right, exactly. Um, so as you're cooling through these different steps, and as Boeing did, right, you got this melt, you cool it down, see what's in it, cool it down some more, stop, see what's in it. So now you've characterized that side. So we refer to these things as mafic minerals. So you start doing the ultramafic or mafic minerals, which are the ones that are rich in magnesium and iron, so that's your olivine and your pyroxenes. You get to intermediate, amphibole, and biotype mica as you go down this. So you get mafic to felsic. And felsic just means rich in silica and other light elements as your temperature decreases. Yes, absolutely. So the other side to this is we can look at what's going on with feldspar. And this is, this is the continuous series. So we start out with calcium clays, and mm -hmm. as we go down in temperature, that changes to be a more sodium-rich plagioclase. Right, and so <laughs> it's, it's kind of hard to, if you don't look at a lot of rocks in thin section under a microscope, I think this might be kind of hard to fathom why there are two different branches, right? But this discontinuous series, these are really discrete minerals. And then you've got this continuous series, and you can have a whole big mix of the chemistry of feldspars. <laughs> right. There's sort of a, I feel like there's a mineralogy term that I'm reaching for here, but <laughs> you, you can have a continuous difference in composition pretty much right, between exactly. calcium so, and sodium. Uh, the lever rule right. comes to mind here. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> Uh, the igneous petrologist who teaches this is British, and so that's what the lever rule is. It's the lever rule. Um, <laughs> so that's, how that's I like just to think of it. <laughs> talking about as you're trading off, uh, say, calcium for sodium or any right. other of these substitutable things in the crystal structure. It talks about how the composition changes based on the idea of having a lever and moving the fulcrum back and forth. It's, right, exactly. it's a simple tool to visualize doing proportional ratiometric change. Right. And if you want to Google something like, you know, um, dissolution plagioclase feldspar or something like that, um, you'll see, you can see in actual thin section, these sort of differences between the calcium and sodium contents. It's actually pretty neat um, the way that it changes the, the way that these feldspars look. Um, they kind of get stripy and really geochemically gross, basically. <laughs> Right. Uh, <laughs> solidus was the word I was looking for. 
Ah, there you go. Yeah. Okay. So uh, (laughs) anyway, so then these two branches, and I've got a link in the notes, so you should look at this diagram. Uh, These two branches meet, so we have sort of a Y shape. We have the discontinuous Mm -hmm. series on the left, the continuous series on the right. Then they meet and go down as one series that then goes through orthoclase, muscovite, and finally to quartz. Right. Uh, So muscovite is a mica. Uh, orthoclase, feldspar, and then quartz is quartz. <laughs> quartz is quartz. Yes, that's for sure. Yes. And um. <laughs> uh, so what we're going for really there is the higher up on the diagram you are, the higher pressure, higher temperature. And that means since quartz is at the bottom, quartz is the most stable thing at the surface. Right. So you can think of Bowen's reaction series as sort of an inverse weathering sort of thing. This is kind of what we, um, where Bowen's reaction series becomes useful in terms of large scale geology. Right. Because quartz is really hard to weather. Because it's stable. Exactly. Whereas olivine at the surface is very unstable and weathers away very quickly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. So. So it's, it's actually, you can even see this when you're like mapping rocks too. Um, so it's a really good tool and it's something like you, you memorize this in intro geology and you're like, okay, when am I ever going to use this? Well, you can use it in all kinds of situations like this, especially mapping igneous rocks because you can tell which ones are weathering more. So, you know, from afar, even that those are more mafic and then you've got these really resistant ones. So big granite ridges that are full of quartz, really felsic, um, quartz was the last out lowest temperature it's pretty cool yeah definitely and i i found a name that i was not familiar with but when you're talking about the change in stability based on how far you Mm -hmm. are from where you formed on the bones reaction series some people call Mm -hmm. it the goldich dissolution series and it's the same chart but apparently i have never heard that i I hadn't either but apparently goldich is the person that came up with this whole if you're looking at the surface and you can look at this differential weathering I had never heard that either, but I found multiple references to that. And I feel awful because that's how, you know, that's the, that's the way that I use Boeing's reaction series. And I kind of, you know, if somebody's come up with that, I would like to credit them. So I think I will try to start using that then. Right. And I, I looked and to my non-geochemist eye, there was no difference. And I didn't find any reference saying that there was. But if I'm wrong, mm. geochemists, feel free to... <laughs> Yes. So let us know. And tell me before I teach this too. So. Right. Uh, <laughs> so, but it, it's really cool to use because you can figure out what mineral assemblages you're likely to see together and what you're not. So you're not going to see olivine and quartz together, but you might see muscovite <laughs> and quartz together because that happens all the time in granite. Exactly. Um, and I, I'm sort of chuckling because that's, um, I had to... TA, our igneous and metamorphic petrology class, which was really hard um, because there are so many, so many minerals out there, right? Um, and I do sedimentary rocks, so we look at maybe 10 minerals right. <laughs> as opposed to 5,000, right? And that was the one thing you could always count on. You know, you see olivine, then that's not quartz in there. It's something else that looks like quartz in a microscope. But don't put quartz <laughs> because it just, the stability-wise, it just doesn't happen. right. Another thing when we talk about how many, you know, silicates make up <laughs> the percentage of the earth. Um, and so since I said I look at sedimentary rocks, I'm most familiar with sedimentary petrology. Um, 
the surface is primarily made up of sedimentary rocks. Okay, great. We can touch those, right? But this Bowen's reaction series is this empirical understanding of all these igneous rocks, which are generally forming, like I alluded to earlier, you know, under the ground, right? Right. So it's really nice that <laughs> this Bowen's reaction series provides this sort of empirical evidence that goes into these models, just like you said earlier, garbage in, garbage out, right? Um, and it's a big deal trying to determine the mineralogy that's going on in the subsurface. Right. So here you're getting into redistribution through our favorite thing, tectonic movements. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's why I threw this in. I thought that, I thought that you would be excited about <laughs> talking about Bowen's reaction series in terms of tectonic stuff, because once you get into that, you know, we're trying to model stuff like how much of X mineral is in the lower lithosphere or the upper asthenosphere or something like that, because now you're talking about how do these plates move based on their mineralogies, and obviously that has to do a lot with your favorite thing, earthquakes. Exactly. So <laughs> Probably not your favorite thing now since you're finishing up your dissertation. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it is, I mean, it's really, as we've said multiple times, the entire Earth system is connected. So we are, you know, talking about tectonic processes influencing distribution of these materials across the surface, how they're going to weather at the surface, which has atmospheric feedbacks that we haven't talked about. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's all kinds of fun stuff. But you actually are pretty close to a nice example of the Goldditch Dissolution series in practice. Right. <laughs> Exactly. So I was saying that, you know, we can use this in the field and it's the first field exercise we do. And it's really awesome um, down here in the Wichita mountains because we have a lot of different um, geochemical things going on with our igneous rocks down here in Oklahoma. I won't even begin to understand all of them, but one of the best ones is that we have a gabbro, which is a really mafic, um, a really mafic rock that's right next to this really felsic granite. And it's just beautiful because you can tell just by looking at an aerial photo, the terrain. You can see that the granites form the hard ridges and then the gabbros are what's forming basically these plains. It's really hard to actually find the gabbros cropping out because they're so weathered and sort of, you know, taken down into they get processed into soil much faster. Um, and so it's one of the very first things we talk about. Yeah, which, I mean, it seems, at first, it seems totally daft to talk about a yeah. weatherable igneous rock. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. And to then use it when you're doing mapping and bring it all the way back to a, you know, class that these students have had four years ago and talk about Bowen's reaction series. But um, we had a really good conversation about it in the field. We actually had a student that can, came up with this out there, and I was almost cried. I was so proud. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, it's the other thing that when you talk to people about Bowen's reaction series, that I think as an undergraduate, I definitely thought, I thought, man, this looks like alchemy. <laughs> I mean, you've got, you've That's got this stuff. And uh, yeah, okay, hate mail. You've got your melt. <laughs> and as you're cooling it down, okay, you get olivine. You cool it down further. Now it's no longer olivine. It's something else. And I mean, really, from a thermodynamic sense, once you think, of, okay, yes, we're just rearranging the same stuff to a state yep. that is more thermodynamically stable. 
under these temperature and pressure conditions. That's fine. But at first, this looks like magic. And I can't imagine what it would have been like <laughs> to do this experiment in the lab. And I, you know, I, can, I can see Bowen with multiple setups and looking, well, looking into the melt, as you do with a 2,000-degree melt, and yeah. <laughs> saying, uh, is this the right container? Yeah. Um, I, I don't think it was maybe the first experiment. It was the second one where it came out the same, where it was like, hmm, interesting. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I love it. And, um, I mean, Bowen's a super sort of big celebrity in terms of geologists that have affected how we, how we geology now. Um, and I know he's he's got a really sort of interesting story, which... Yeah, we're not going to go into here, but I highly encourage you, if you're really into history of science, he's one of the figures that's pretty neat to look up. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, of course, links in the show notes. Yes. But I think we should probably move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! Now, I can't believe you picked a medical paper. <laughs> I thought that was my job on the show. Yeah, no, I picked one. Uh, this is from... Uh, this is the real journal name, the Journal of Medical Internet Research. <laughs> I mean, I'm laughing, but it was that was one of the notes I made about this was, wow, I didn't realize there was all this stuff on the internet about that we use for medical stuff, but we'll get into that. Yes. So the title is Guess Who's Not Coming for Dinner? Evaluating <laughs> Online Restaurant Reservations for Disease Surveillance. <laughs> Now, that title is a little misleading because I assumed it meant diseases caused by the restaurants, but that's not what we're talking about here. No, that's not what we're talking about at all. So <laughs> what we're actually talking about in this paper is trying to see if there's any correlation between people skipping their dinner reservations or the number of open tables at a restaurant and the flu. Right. And I also find this funny because I live in a relatively small town. And so it's not something that, you know, you would do on any sort of regular basis is use um, open table to book a restaurant in town. So that's weird. But they obviously took this into account and <laughs> did this um, did this study over um, several different large cities in both the United States and Mexico. Right, and so they use the, the API for open table to go through and mine out the number of open tables in half-hour increments during lunch and dinner periods, mm -hmm. and they define those pretty broadly, and <laughs> then they used information uh, from a Google index on the severity of the flu, and then tried to correlate the two to see if more sick people meant fewer table reservations. See, that was something I didn't know existed. Google flu trend data. Yeah, and I noticed in the, the commentary on this paper, there were some people criticizing that that was not a very good source, generally. <laughs> uh, but the journal is medical internet research. <laughs> right. So... So... I, I thought this was a neat idea, and... Yes. I struggle a little bit with the utility of it because I think it's easier to figure out how bad the disease is based on things like doctor's office visits, uh, prescription fills, that kind of thing. 
So I did two at first, but the more that I cogitated on this, the more I thought this was actually really cool because, okay, yeah, doctor's office visits, but sometimes that's not a very good precursor to understanding a pandemic because that's not the first thing you do, right? So you hmm. get sick and you're like, oh, I've got this reservation I have to cancel or whatever. And that's probably going to happen before you actually get to the doctor and then that doctor's office, you know, reports on your illness. So I think it's actually a pretty interesting precursor to use. Ah, so you're thinking the lead time will be a little yes. bit longer. I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I was, at first, I was, I was the same thing. I was like, I don't even understand this. But if you're trying to get ahead of a pandemic, and they even say this too, the researchers, like, this is just one of several tools. Um, I think it's a good one. Yeah, and I mean, it, yeah. this does just go to show how much data that's out there can be mined for everything. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this, um, this, we're definitely going to have to talk about big data soon because it's hard to wrap your head around. And this is something, it's one of those correlations, like why would you ever think this? But that's why you would think it because you're like, oh, crap, I'm sick. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to be able to keep this reservation. I cancel it. Oh, well, a whole bunch of people are canceling. Maybe this is an alert to you know, the CDC or anything that there's something big that could potentially be occurring. Um and it was statistically significant in several cities that they looked at. It was. Uh, they did have a few false indications from early lunch crowds. Yeah. But the, <laughs> the, uh, the charts that they've got, figure one, shows the correlation. They are pretty similar shaped. I mean, this is something that uh, mm -hmm. a geologist can look at and appreciate. Uh, uh, yes, exactly. Because <laughs> I mean, we are pattern matching, but it's noisy real data. Uh -huh. Yeah. And I mean, some of the, what I found interesting was that some cities were so correlatable versus other cities. I thought that was an interesting stat. So like, I think it was Atlanta was one of the best correlations. Right. And I thought that was really interesting. So that one was super statistical, <laughs> not that that is a statistical measure. It was statistically significant. <laughs> um, whereas other cities, you know, not so much. So I wonder, I don't know what that says. I don't know if it's a regional thing, if people are more likely to drop reservations in one part of the country versus the other. Right, exactly. That's, yeah. I don't know. But it would, I mean, those, those lines are very, very similar. So it's, it's interesting. I thought this was a, an interesting use of data for that reason. But the more, the more I thought about it, like I said, the, the cooler I thought that this was or could be in terms of making large-scale sort of analyses and trying to get ahead of things very quickly. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it reminded me of something that you would see on, do you remember the TV series Numbers? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It sounded like yep. something they would do on there. In, in this TV series, a mathematician was the star uh, who always helped the FBI solve crimes, including some disease outbreaks, uh, using mathematical tools. And this sounds very much like something that would have been on there. I, I thought it smacked a little of Freakonomics myself. Oh, yeah, I would buy that too. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I don't remember exactly what year's number was, was on. I know it was 2000, oh, 
years. Uh, so open table and that kind of stuff wasn't really big at that point. Yeah. So that yeah, wouldn't have worked. True. But if there was a remake now, I think it would be using a lot more social media Something data mining. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, this is this was a really interesting use. Um, like I said, I didn't realize that internet medical research was a thing, but obviously it is. <laughs> yeah, and at some point we should actually uh, get some folks on here that I know there are several groups doing research using social media feeds to determine geohazards. So things from oh, earthquakes, yeah. all of the yeah. So using social media as a scientific tool is becoming more and more important for sure. Yeah, it is. I think that's sort of a consequence that no one anticipated, but it's also probably a a, a very serendipitous one. Uh, absolutely. So, so, no, and this is a short paper. It's easy to read, and the PDF is open access. All good things. It will be linked in the show notes if you'd like to read it yourself. If you have an idea for a fun paper or you find a rubber band fun paper that we haven't <laughs> been able to find or have any other comment about the show, we'd love to hear from you. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Uh, well, we're looking forward to Steve's uh, fun paper that he's going to submit to show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. And we're having some pretty exciting um, arguments and conversations in our Slack chat room, swung.rocks, um, on the Don't Panic channel. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.